Hi, this is Katie Maxwell. And I'm Lauren Paris. We're your hosts of Voices of the Earth, a Faith in Place podcast. We explore the intersection of spirituality, the environment, and justice. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Voices of the Earth. I'm joined today by my co-host Katie. Say hi Katie. Hey there, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, Today we're going to be talking about an exciting topic, which is parenting within the climate crisis. And for those of you who don't know, Katie and I are in our 20s, uh, so we do not have children at the moment. But we will be talking later to two of our staff members who do, our executive director, Reverend Brian Sauter, and our senior Illinois policy coordinator, Christina Crost. Um, And we're really looking forward to that conversation, but we want to kick off our intro today um, with this question. How do we feel as 220-somethings about the possibility of having children in light of the climate crisis and also just everything that's going on in the world right now? Yeah, it's a great question, Lauren. And, um, you know, I think for us as people who are a little bit younger um, on staff and who don't have kids, um, in light of everything that's going on and the way that... um, political things are happening and developing and the way the climate crisis is developing, it can really seem like a big daunting question to think about having kids. And when I think about it for myself, I'm often pretty scared to think about the idea of having, of bringing a a young one into this world. How about you? Yes, I feel very similar. Um, I, you know, have been with my partner for about four and a half years and we talk about, you know, getting married and having kids and that's something that we both would really like to do. Um, We didn't come from big families and so we'd really like to, you know, have a family of our own and have that sense of closeness. Um, But it is scary and working in, you know, the climate movement and seeing, you know, news every day that isn't the best. (laughs) You know, we do see some good news. We, We are doing positive work. We see a lot of our, you know, partners and people we're working with doing positive work and making changes in the climate movement, um, which does give me hope sometimes, but then other times, you know, seeing the latest IPCC report, you know, it's not so positive and it does um, instill a sense of fear in me about my future and having kids and do I want to bring, you know, a child into a world of unknowns, you know, where we just don't, we don't know what will happen, what our future will be. And I personally have doubts about bringing a child into a world where they might, you know, struggle to breathe, to breathe clean air, struggle to have, you know, healthy, like affordable food. These are the fears that I have. Totally. I think those are completely valid fears. And I often feel very similarly also want to have kids. I absolutely adore kids. The kids that are in my life are just joys that I really 
um, really value the opportunity to be in their lives and to be a good mentor, to just, you know, show up for them. Because the adults, when I was growing up, who um, I have really fond memories of, um, are the ones that were there for me and the ones that, that really, like, made an effort to um, be in my life and um, to care uh, for me. So I want to do that for other kids, whether they're my own kids or even just um, kids within my community, because I really believe in this, in, in the value of like being within a deep community where you're caring mutually for other people. Um, so I think it's something that I've spoken to a little bit in the past on the podcast. Um, but I also want to bring in some thoughts that we'll get into a little bit more in this um, conversation when we speak with Christina and Brian. And that's the, um, there's an article that Ezra Klein recently wrote called Your Kids Are Not Doomed and um, published it in the New York Times um, in, in June of this year. And he talks about how having children is an act of hope, especially within the climate crisis. And I appreciate that perspective. It, it definitely changed the way that I think about the question of having kids or not, um, because we're not the first generation to have existential questions that we have to answer for ourselves and to navigate a complicated, dangerous world in which um, it, it, you really wonder whether having a kid is a good idea or not. So having him frame that for me helped me realize that um, this is something that has come up before and will continue to come up. And in fact, having a kid, having a child can be an act of looking forward and thinking about um, the impact that that you can have long term um, on this planet and and um, kind of acting with a sense of focus toward um, making sure that the world that we live in and the world that we're bringing our kids into is one that is livable and safe and enjoyable. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Katie. I loved Ezra Klein's article, um, and it really did change my perspective um, and really brought up a lot of questions for me, you know, specifically when he talks about a lot of other people in our generation and and generation below us. uh, Another fear that they have is just um, their own personal ecological footprint uh, bringing another child into this world. And Ezra Klein talks a lot about that perspective, um, you know, because some people, some environmentalists uh, really don't think they should bring a, bring a child into the world because of the toll that every person, you know, especially in the U.S. has on the environment. Um, but then he really brings that perspective in of, well, who is going to save 
you know, our world? Who's really going to stop climate change? Because we're really relying on, you know, yes, the work we're doing now, but it's really going to be those future generations who are stepping in and doing great work and tackling this. And so, you know, choosing to not bring a child into the world for the sake of the environment might actually do more harm because who knows, your your child could be one of the most famous climate activists that has ever existed. <laughs> so that perspective really made me think um, as well and that it is kind of doing a disservice um, for some because, yeah, we, we are bringing in the future generation and I'm hoping that that's going to be a great generation full of compassionate smart individuals that's right and it's really a lot about like reframing how kids can be part of an active imagination toward creating a better healthier world Um, and if we don't um, enable them and provide them the tools that they need to do that or even the opportunity to do that um, yeah to your point Lauren then we um are doing a disservice to them and doing a disservice to ourselves. And something else that you said that we don't have a lot of time to dig into, but I also want to say is just like carbon footprint is something that the fossil fuel industry developed in order to place blame on individuals and deflect the blame from themselves. And so I think it's important to note that and think about that because at the end of the day like it's the big companies that have to change and we need policy changes in order to push those Um, and I'm excited that we'll have some opportunities in a bit to hear from Brian about um, those kinds of policy changes. Yeah thanks Katie and um, you know it, it poses the question, you know, whether or not we have children of our own one day, how can we be a part of a community that raises young people into compassionate, healthy adults? Um, and that is a question that you've posed to me and that I've really had to think on, you know, if we decide not to have children, uh, or even if we do, you know, how can we be a part of a community that raises young people into compassionate individuals, you know, as a united front? Yeah, that's right. And as you said, you know, a lot of the questions that you and I talk about here are questions that we're also thinking about pretty deeply offline and figuring out what makes sense for our Um, lives. And we really want to invite our listeners into that practice as well. We don't have all of the answers to these questions and many of the questions, especially questions of whether or not to have children is a very personal question. And we want to invite you all to just reflect on that and um, to Join us as we continue um, into the next segment of our um, episode today, because I think it's really going to be a fruitful conversation, and I'm excited to get into it. 
on today's episode, Katie and I, two 20-somethings who very much do not have kids, chat with two of our colleagues who do. Reverend Brian Sauter, our executive director, joins us for the first time on the pod to talk about being a new parent and how parenthood has shaped his work on climate justice. He recently wrote an article on that topic and the importance of protecting the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act for Crane Chicago Business, which we'll link in the show notes. But first, Christina Crost, who is a mother of three daughters, returns to the show to break down how the current political climate is affecting her own family. Thanks for returning to the show, Christina. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Lauren and Katie. Yes, of course. We're so glad to have you. We've been wanting to bring you back to have a conversation about parenting. Um, You know, part of the inspiration for this episode was the fact that you've shared with Katie and I that the fossil fuel industry has tried to kill your children's school district, not once, but twice. So to kick off today's episode, would you mind telling us a little bit more about that experience? Sure. So, you know, living in rural East Central Illinois, um, you know, it can be really difficult for school districts to uh, find the kind of property tax funds uh, that one needs to keep a really healthy, you know, school district going. And uh, in about, it was about 2016 till about 2018, uh, somewhere in that time frame, uh, the town that we were living in uh, failed to pass a property tax referendum two years in a row. Um, some of that had to do with um, the folks that lived in the town. Many of them were really wealthy landowning farmers and had already raised their kids and their grandkids and were not really super interested in paying extra money uh, to fund the schools. But the young families in the town that were sending uh, their kids to um, school were really uh, worried that they wouldn't have, you know, the kind of funds that they needed to make the school district, you know, strong and healthy and and have all of the fun, cool things like art and music and gym class and, and all of that, that, you know, most of us, I think, probably grew up having in our own school systems. So when those property tax uh, referenda did not pass, This was also during the time where the state of Illinois had a real budget crisis and that crisis was really trickling down to our schools. Um, The schools had to shut down uh, an hour a a day for two years. Our kids lost educational instruction time. That really adds up uh, whether your kid is struggling in school or not. um, That's really difficult. If you're a parent and you're working, and many of us are, um, having your child dismissed from school an hour earlier uh, than you, the normal, say, three o'clock dismissal time is very disruptive to your family life. Uh, I don't know a lot of families who can just pop out of their work to go pick up a child from school. And there was no provision for after school care or anything like that which is a place where, uh, you know, our church really stepped in and started an after-school program and I helped get that going. And, you know, that's just kind of what you have to do when there's a crisis in your town. But 
the property tax referendum and, and all of that that failed also came about, uh, you know, again, the budget crisis was part of that. But another issue there was that the school district was in a really tough spot because there is a gas-fired peaker plant that was built within the school district bounds maybe 10 or so years before we moved into the area. And that plant was built promising jobs, promising tax, you know, benefits for the school district. And and so, you know, the, the town was fairly enthusiastic about having that come to town. But in the years that followed the building of that plant and the, you know, operation of that plant, um, that tax money <laughs> that was supposed to come to the district didn't. And in fact, through a very convoluted uh, situation, the school district had to pay back money that the um, plant was supposed to pay to the school district uh, because it wasn't considered like a permanent um, structure. And so like they couldn't they weren't subject to taxation. I, I don't exactly remember how that went down. But so this you know, plant that came to town promising to help our schools out of a financial crisis and, you know, provide all these jobs absolutely didn't. And in fact, really harmed my community because my school district did not have a rainy day fund then uh, because of having to pay this this uh, gas plant back. They didn't have that money to help be more resilient when the state budget crisis happened uh, so again, they cut the kids' school day one hour a day for two years. They uh, fired the art teacher. They they kept music, but they um, moved all of the classroom teachers into having to teach their own gym class instead of having a you know actual certified you know physical education instructor. Um, just a lot of sacrifices had to happen for these families. So you had this property tax issue and this gas plant issue, and um, no one was really thinking of the families uh, in the town at that time, which was really frustrating. It absolutely bled into the daily life of families sending their kids to school in that district. The morale, you know, in our families was really low. The morale among the teachers was really low. We lost some really gifted educators because it was not a very fun place to work. And that happened for about two years. And then, you know, my husband's a pastor. And so we kind of move around from time to time um, as our bishop assigns us. And we moved out of that district right about the time where things kind of started swinging back up, where they were able to put the school day back to a normal school day. And they were able to add some of the things back but we still keep in touch with some of those families. And, you know, if you ask members of the school board and, you know, who happen to be friends of ours when we were living in the town, they will tell you the gas plant coming to town was one of the worst things that uh, happened in that community. There was not a benefit. It actually made things worse. And the effects of that um, are still there today. Um, and this is, you know, now we're going on almost 20 years of, of this happening in our community. And so there's really been a, a quite lasting effect uh, in the community.
Thanks for sharing that, Christina. I know I feel like we, a lot of the times as environmental professionals, we tend to hear that, you know, gas plants and industry are really great for communities. They create opportunities for wealth creation and things like that. But that's very rarely the case. I mean, not only the environmental and health um, impacts of having those types of industry in communities, that obviously takes a very concerning toll um, on our communities, but also just the financial um, issues that they can bring about and the financial devastation and the fact that schools have to pay the price for that and education would be one of the first things to get cut is just mind-boggling to me. So I should also mention that, you know, having lived in a town that was really struggling with, um, you know, this gas plant coming in and making all these promises and then, you know, having, I think, some really unintended consequences that were really negative to the town. Um, This is not the only town in Illinois where this happens. Like this, this same situation comes up from time to time. There's a town near Springfield where um, the very same thing is happening. And so I felt as a mom, uh, as someone who cares about the environment, you know, that story of what happened in our town needs to be told to these other cities that are experiencing a corporation coming in and saying they're going to provide all these benefits and then not. Um, you know, and you're right, Lauren, I, I kind of focused on economics and, and issues with the school district, but I should also mention that my oldest child has asthma um, and really suffers, uh, especially as it gets really humid outside or the air quality, you know, tanks. And, and we've got a couple of rough days. I remember last year when the um, wildfire smoke was you know, from, you know, out west was really kind of starting to blanket the Midwest. And she had to stay indoors and, you know, have her inhaler in her hand. And so, you know, not only was it bad for my kids education, you know, but it was it's really hard on our health. Um, and so these gas plants coming in and putting up shop in our towns is is really dangerous. And short sighted. When we're not considering the long term impacts of our education and our public health. Thanks for sharing your story, Christina. Um, I hear in your story a lot of stress as a parent. And I know that the climate crisis creates a lot of stress on parenting. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how the climate crisis and especially legislative decisions like the Dobbs decision that recently came down from the Supreme Court um, is shaping your parenting and, and what kinds of conversations are you having with your three daughters? Yeah, that's really important. You know, I sit at my desk most days and I, I watch things like, you know, the, the EVA, EPA versus West Virginia decisions come down and, and I watch as, you know, a lot of what used to be things at the federal level control, you know, gets kicked back to the states to control. And it reminds me that real change that we can make often starts in the home. Um, and we like to be the kind of family where um, we lead by example. We like to be one of the households where um, the kids' friends like to come and hang out. And so, um, you know, we're often the family that has 
you know, the reusable plastic bags, like the silicone ones. And, you know, my kids go to school with um, reusable lunchbox, you know, the stainless boxes and and things like that, you know, bento box kinds of lunchboxes. And, um, you know, we compost and there's a pile, you know, a a turner in the backyard. And we, um, you know, all of those things that we do to be more sustainable as a household, you know, we kind of then get to model for the kids that come over to our house, you know, and hang out with, you know, the the kids. I have a 17-year-old, a 13-year-old, and an 8-year-old. So there's pretty much always somebody who I did not give birth to hanging out in my house. So we get to be some of that change, get to show by example what what being more sustainable at a just a very basic household level looks like. And, you know, it's funny how we we kind of get a reputation of, oh, that's the house that composts or, oh, hey, did you know that, you know, Mrs. Kroos does this thing at her house and they go back to their own families and talk about it with their parents. And, you know, we know through research, especially like the Girl Scouts have done that when we teach, especially our girls um, to be more energy efficient, to be more sustainable at the household level, they take those lessons back to their home. And they're able to teach their parents and those changes last. And it really is especially when we teach our girls uh, to do that. And so, you know, there's been some really fascinating research done around, you know, when we empower and educate women, um, the, the impacts of that are really lasting to our families and to our communities. And so we we just try to remember that, you know, everything has to start locally and that you know, that's where we have the most control. And so, you know, we do all those personal change things, but I also have brought children, you know, all of my children at some point uh, to lobby day uh, when we go to Springfield. So we, you know, we try to do all of those things that we can do at the household. Mm-hmm. I appreciate Christina, you sharing some of the examples and the ways that you as a family lead by example And I would personally rather be the household that's known for composting than for being, I don't know, loud and obnoxious or something like that. I think having, um, showing other people how you can care for the earth um, in your everyday is, is great and is an awesome segue into our second half of our episode where we're going to bring in Reverend Brian Souter, who's been listening to the conversation for his perspective as a new parent, because he's really leading by example and and guiding his little ones. So excited to have Brian with us and to kind of bring in a, a slightly different perspective, because Christina, you have older children and Brian, you have much younger children. So welcome to the show, Brian. Hey, Katie. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Christina. It's just so great to join you all on this podcast. Voices of the Earth. I'm excited. Thank you so much. (laughs) Really uh, a little passion project for Lauren and me over here and really excited to have you, Brian, on the show for the first time and Christina to have you back. Um, Before we get into some of the questions, Brian, since this is your first time on the show, I want to introduce our listeners to you a little bit more. Um, because your work as the executive director of Faith in Place is focused on growing the impact of our mission to empower people of all faiths across Illinois and Indiana and Wisconsin. 
to be leaders for cleaner environments and healthier communities. You have a passion for empowering faith communities across Illinois and those other states as well um, to take measurable steps to connect the dots between faith, environmental justice, poverty, mass incarceration, race, violence, class, and health. And your leadership is recognized as an award recipient of the University of Illinois Business School Community Scholar and as a Central Illinois Business 40 Under 40 winner as well. And you are also a 2019 Midwest Energy News 40 Under 40 recipient. So just incredibly um, impressive, I have to say, Brian. Well, thanks, Katie. And as of today, I have two little twin girls that are nine months old. Ida and Irene are their names, uh, just turned nine months. And you you said something kind of funny to me, Katie. You said, you know, two new children that I'm guiding. I don't think I'm doing much guiding at this point in nine months. I think they're more guiding me. And I'm just trying to, as a parent, uh, make sure I support them and all their, their needs. I, I like to say that they're little advocates for their own needs. And they express that through a lot of crying, a lot of screaming, and a lot of laughter and crawling around and uh, a lot of fun. So it's a great joy. Well, that's completely fair. Um, congrats to Ida and Irene for turning nine months today. That's huge. Yay. <laughs> hey, they're still alive and they're still thriving. That, that, that's that's the win right there. <laughs> well, thanks, Brian. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. That was quite the introduction. So thank you, Katie. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about um, Ida and Irene and, and how they sort of influence your work um, as someone working in the climate movement. Uh, and more specifically, Brian, you recently wrote about having faith in Seja and what this historic legislation means to you as a new parent for Crane Chicago Business, which is really awesome. Um, and we'll be linking that article in the show notes. Um, but can you touch on this op-ed and how being a new parent has really influenced your work in climate? Yeah, absolutely. I, so there's, there's, a, there's a few things because I, my career is dedicated to climate change and working in advocacy and, and lifting up uh, our climate crisis as uh, uh, something that needs a lot of our attention to address, uh, you know, if I was a politician running for something, I would say it's an existential crisis. It, it, it is. Um, but this is something, you know, that faith in place, we believe is deeply rooted in spiritual disconnection, that our ecological crisis is born out of us being disconnected from ourselves, from each other, from the communities where we live, from the earth. Uh, and that disconnection is something that our faith traditions, diverse faith traditions, bring a lot of millennia of wisdom to us to help us heal and help us reconnect uh, in those sort of ways. And one thing that I think is, um, this maybe seems like a little bit of a tangent, but, but I want to get there, like something that's ubiquitous in the environmental movement is this notion that we as, as individuals are responsible for the problem and that we need to sacrifice our individual well-being in order to solve the problem. And I guess I came on the podcast to say today that that is propaganda from the fossil fuel industry that is shifting the blame from them as corporations to us as individuals and saying, individuals are a problem, we need to do this thing. Now this is, you know, Katie, I'm with you. We need, we compost in our household, I'm proud of it. We live the sort of lifestyle that we wanna see, but I'm also aware enough that I wanna live an abundant life, right? A life that's part of a system 
that is a healthy community that thrives. And that's why I'm so passionate about advocacy work. And that's why I spoke out of the Cranes op-ed, specifically taking on the Illinois Manufacturers Association for wanting to take away $180 million as negotiated in CJ that goes to our equity provisions, our workforce development programs, our, our prison to solar sort of programs, the programs that are so crucial for creating the future that I want to see, the future I want Ida and Irene to live in where communities aren't left behind, right? Um, so that's kind of a long-winded answer to say, to tell you a little bit about my thought process over the last many years and thinking about this question as someone in climate advocacy, someone who fairly regularly gets you know, the climate data about how things are not going well uh, for climate change, how the climate is changing currently, and it's leading to more hurricanes, more wildfires, more droughts, more flooding, things that are impacting us right here in Chicago, but also all, all across the globe. Uh, you know, this question comes up, right? Like, why would you bring children into this world that's experiencing such catastrophe? And I think that sacrifice mentality is core to that, right? Like, I think we need to be aware that there is sort of a propaganda machine fueled by corporations that are vested in fossil fuels that's trying to put the blame on all of us. And I don't think the solution is taking on the blame that's not responsible for us. I think part of the solution is raising children, hopefully. Come on, Ida and Irene, I'm cheering for you. Uh, you know, who join us in the cause of making sure that corporations are responsible, that that legislation moves in a way to create the sort of future that we want to see. Um, so Lauren, I'm kind of just, I'm, I'm, I'm responding, but that was part of the Cranes article was the name that, and it's part of the thinking that informed to like, hey, let's, Let's bring uh, new life into the world and, and live an abundant life that we want to see um, and also be honest about the world that we're bringing them into. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that, Brian. And I think this brings up a reoccurring theme that we've discussed on the last few of our episodes, which is, you know, this idea between individual action and, and systematic change. And, you know, it's always good to have a little bit of both, but as we've mentioned, you know, industry tends to put the responsibility on the consumer and we really need to shift away from that and really start um, advocating for systematic change, number one. Yeah, and I'm just such a believer in painting a picture as best as we can of the world we want to live in that's appealing and it drives us towards us. I think we build our coalition broader, wider, more powerful when we do that. It's it's very difficult to build an inclusive, powerful grassroots coalition when all you're doing is showing up in community and saying, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do this, you know, you need to sacrifice this. That. I mean, it's just, it's just not smart on that sort of strategy level, but it's also not what I want to be involved in. I want to be involved in painting the picture like this is, I, when I picture a healthy community, you have access to a career, wealth creation opportunities, you have families that are playing in open space, access to nature, local, fresh, healthy food, good music, right? Like, you know, entertainment, the arts, like that sounds like a community I want to live in. And so we got to say, well, we're not quite there yet, both in Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, where Faith and Place is active, but across the globe, what do we have to do? Well, we need to re redirect billions of dollars of investment of how we're investing that money uh, into our communities. And how do we make that known? Well, we get, we get, you know, we join Christina and her kids on the lobby bus, right? Going down to the state house so they get to know our legislators and let them know that's the type of future that we want to create. Brian, I appreciate you painting this picture of an abundant, joyful, full life, because to me, it really speaks to 
this organizing idea of this is the world as it is, and this is the world as it should be. And how do we get from where we are today to where we can be? And I think Faith in Place does an excellent job of doing that. Yeah, and it's it's not something where we're ignoring the present state, right? We're we're very much courageously looking at the injustices that are happening, the the racism that's that's going on, the brutality, the violence, and naming that. But we're lifting it and bringing it to the light in in towards the long term, right? We're doing that local organizing towards the long term vision that we want. Um, somebody, I saw this, you know forgive me for quoting like a meme that I saw on the the internet, but it, it kind of grabbed me. It was like in a world where there's actual literal dragons, we need to be raising new dragon slayers. And that kind of like, that spoke to me as a, like, you know, raising Ida and Irene, like, okay, like part of my responsibility here is to educate my children as best as I can over time about the real dragons that exist out there um, and how we need to be faithfully advocating and painting a different picture now that being said i like dragons so i need a different i need a better metaphor like i don't know what that better metaphor is but maybe hmm. you all can help me out I'm with that i'm going to do some thinking <laughs> i mean i don't want to i don't want to come up yeah i don't want to come across as pro dragon slayer here on the voices for the earth podcast mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. i think you understand and i think are. we have some dragon slayers in the crost household too you know one of them maddie is an eco ambassador hey hey You also, uh, Brian, you're bringing up some thoughts that kind of also inspired this. So Christina inspired this particular episode by sharing a little bit of her story and her children's um, education in the fossil fuel industry. But Brian, you also shared with us um, this article written by Ezra Klein called Your Kids Are Not Doomed. You want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, the most startling thing I, I, you know, Ezra Klein, the New York Times columnist, also just kind of out there as a pundit in the world and has a has a fairly large following. Um, what was start, you know, was someone in that sort of position, he said the number one question he gets is why would people bring children into the world that's facing this sort of climate catastrophes and other sort of upsetting news that we're facing every day. So I was quite taken with the fact that this is very common question and a theme it's a it's a, and, a, and I, I related to it because it's a question that my partner and I wrestled with as well as we thought about these sort of things um he does a kind of interesting take in that article I mean we could kind of go through and maybe nitpick some of it and some of the climate sciences he's using is maybe a little uh a little bit more on the optimistic side than where I might be um and look at like what the IPCC report is is laying out and that sort of thing but I, I like the question and I think it gets to um, maybe a deeper analysis that at Faith in Place we like to do, which is more on the spiritual lens. Like what what are the spiritual roots for why we do have children and raise them in this world? What is the spiritual roots of our environmental problems? How do we address those? And I, that's where I feel um, it's almost like an act of faith or hope or inspiration to bring new life into the world and to uh, face with clarity and encourage the problems that we have um, and, and work to, to build the communities that we want to see. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that maybe we could dive into that article just a little bit further, I think Lauren and I both saw different things in it that spoke to us and thinking about parenting, but something that you said a little bit earlier, Brian, was that here at Faith in Place, we're really trying to look at the climate crisis by uh, breaking down 
the inequities. And Ezra Klein talks a little bit about the inequity of climate change. Um, so how do we stop willfully ignoring the fact that uh, peaker plants and air pollution are disproportionately affecting people of color? Like, how do we bring that to our own backyard? Yeah, I think we are making progress there and just the environmental movement in general and shifting the movement to be more equity centered and focused. And I think we have a long ways to go. Uh, to me, it's evidenced by just, you know, as a faith in place, we get out in the community a lot. We do a lot of events. We do a lot of listening. We do a lot of teaching, um, sharing together. And it's still a kind of a new concept. People think of climate solutions. Um, they're, they immediately sort of start thinking about carbon reduction appropriately so, but they think of that absence of doing it in this, in the context of a larger vision of creating the communities that we want and addressing how these things are connected together. So I think we have our work cut out for us in um, making that clear, uh, continuing to meet people where they're at and continuing to work to go further and in, in understanding what is an environmental justice vision and how can we all participate both and how can we lift up those who are suffering the most and and support their advocacy, but how do we become good allies in that work as well and, and supporting them? So I think there's there's a lot there. Um, one thing that I I very much uh, am inspired by at Faith in Place, even before my time when I was executive director, Faith in Place for a long time has uh, hosted environment and race conversations. And the reason for that is, is, is uh, the environmental justice movement, and we don't have to go into this, all this history, but, you know, started in the 80s, and there was people of faith leading the way, Black church women in Warren County, they were leading the way, protesting, you know, the toxic chemicals being dumped in the communities, but also the United Church of Christ and their report on toxic waste, naming race as a, as, as a key factor for where toxic waste is dumped in this country, and people of faith at UCC report naming for the first time environmental racism. And so at Faith in Place, when we kind of look at our lineage of thought, philosophy, if you will, we tie it right back to those people of faith who have been leading with, you know, the prophetic call of environmental racism, naming why things are a certain way and connecting the dots between racism and environmental injustice is really crucial. And Faith in Place has been doing that since our history of, you know, starting for the last over 20 years. And we continue to do that. And I, I see us making progress. Um, I particularly saw us make progress in 2020 after the murdering of George Floyd. I think our audience kind of, you know, as as folks saw at a new level, maybe some of the the blinders that were in the way of seeing the impacts of racism on the day-by-day -day experiences of people of color, as they saw that more, they also got, oh, this is why Faith in Place has been talking about connecting the dots between environmental racism, environmental justice, um, and that these two things are related together. And we've done a lot of good work since, uh, you know, Isioma Odom on our team, leading the anti-racism racial healing circles that she does with our green teams. Any green teams listening that haven't done that yet, shout out, right? Like do that because you start to see that the roots of our spiritual disconnection are the same disconnection that leads to racism, leads to gun violence, leads to environmental injustice, air pollution. And as you start to see that, you start to see then, oh, the solution is in building more connection with each other, with ourselves and with the earth around us. And we can rely on our spiritual traditions to help inspire us in that way. To me, I, I get, if you can't tell, I start to preach, I get excited, right? Like that, to me, that's exciting work that's addressing the root cause of our environmental climate problems. 
and that root cause is 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 right there in racism and the inequities and the disproportionate levels of air pollution and community like color. To say, you get the idea. Um, all that is right there. <laughs> I feel like that's the major theme of faith in place. Um, and I do think we do a really good job at, you know, showing how everything hey, is connected. Hey. Um, switching gears a little bit. So something that really stood out to me in this op-ed, because I will be completely candid and honest, um, you know, a lot of my friends and I have discussed about having kids, you know, we're in our mid twenties. So I feel like that's kind of the time where you just start, you start to think about these things. And, you know, the overall consensus is like, we want to have kids, but we are, you know, we're scared with everything going on, not just the climate crisis, but what's happening in politics and, and just a lot of what's happening in the world um, can just be really discouraging and scary. But after reading uh, Ezra Klein's op-ed, something that really stood out to me is um, that he wrote, at some point, we're asking whether we believe in the continuation of society and the possibility of young people to be an engine for change. And that really hit me personally and sort of started to change my viewpoint. Um, can you tell us, Brian, how your children and future generations in general give you hope within the climate crisis? Yeah, well, it's a great question. Is it, I, I love hearing kind of your response to Ezra's op-ed in that sort of regard. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to formulate like I'm not sure my like like where I've kind of come in this journey. Um, you know, I think it happened before Ida and Irene got here. Now, do I feel more motivation now that I'm looking at Ida and Irene every day, giving them their bottle, changing their diapers? I do feel more motivation and particularly to have more of a voice in the public square um, to to push, you know, policy actions forward. Uh, the other thing I'm just thinking about in response is not a direct response to your question is like, y'all, like the other side's having kids. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, like that is a very real thing. Like if for those of us who care about the vision of healthy communities that we're laying out, for all of us to stop having children and raising them up, I mean, we're kind of losing, right? We're giving ground. And it's like a really like kind of awful pragmatic <laughs> perspective to give. But Can I, I jump do in? Think it. Like, I don't know if you that, all think that out loud. Yeah, no, um, that that's so funny. This yeah, is a absolutely, small Katie. aside and I'll, I'll let you finish. But I was having a conversation with someone the other day who was like, you know, the progressive um, nuns and people who are deciding to be in clergy, um, those are dying out and it's the really conservative folks who are deciding to become nuns and priests and what does that mean for the legacy of those faith traditions um if it's only going to if if it's losing some of that diversity so you saying that brian has kind of put a new spin on this and i think i'm going to be chewing on it for a minute because it it's like Lauren, it's something that I have also been concerned about not being a parent. Um, but you're right. The other side is having kids. Yeah. And, you know, there's the there's that research that's out there that's like, you know, how they can predict how well you're going to survive a catastrophe. And it's it's correlated heavily with how well you know your neighbors, how well you have community around you. Um, and I, I think the vision we're, we're painting here is a vision of how do we create more connections and community around us? And it's community that's like, hey, you want to be a parent? You want to have kids? We're going to support the heck out of you to do that. 
hey, you want to be single? You want to do this? That's okay too. We're going to support you. Like, like it's it's not like a community that's like this is one way or another. Because as someone, you know, I, I was married. I've been married. Oh no, why am I saying this when I don't know the math? I was married in 2011, so I've been married 11 years. You know, so my wife and I just just have nine month old babies. So we've been married a long time before we decided to have children and and actually had children. And you know, we we experienced that sort of unhealthy pressure of like, oh, the thing to do is to have children, blah blah blah. And you know, we just have to say no. That's you know, that's that's our choice first of all. And also, there's no one path of like sort of satisfaction, happiness. Um, but there is a deep desire, I think, that we all have for real community. And I think also, uh, I'm still in my 30s, so I'm going to claim being a 30 year old here. But like, I think, I think for being a little younger, right, in in my career and in, in this work, it's not just a desire for community, but it's community that's accountable, right? It's community that's based on, you know, some of the racial healing principles and anti racism principles that Faith of Place teaches, right? It's community that's it's authentic and vulnerable. It's community where you don't have to show up and you feel like, oh, I have to perform, you know, and be such and such in order to be belong in the community. It's a community that accepts you for who you are, but also keeps you accountable and challenges you towards uh, something more. Um, and it's community that's, uh, you know, cl- lives out its values, right? Like what we're talking about, keeping the both, like living out our values of composting, of keeping our carbon emissions low, of eating healthy, supporting local farmers, but also community that advocates for larger change that re- that reflects those values. And unfortunately, our our faith traditions, at least I can speak in the U.S., and I'm a Mennonite minister, so I can speak about the Mennonite church, you know, have kind of lost some of those core principles of community, um, particularly around accountability, responsibility, living out values, uh, accepting people for who they are, and, and um welcoming all and that sort of thing. And I think if we get back to that, right, and reclaim sort of our religious traditions and principles that that lift those up and, you know, help us have real authentic community, um, I think we go a long ways in addressing our climate crisis as well, because we're building resiliency. We're building the sort of community that helps us be prepared, that has us surrounded with our loved ones so that when catastrophe does happen, we're reaching out. One thing Faith in Place does is beautiful is connects communities to each other, right? So we're working in communities from Marion to the south side of Chicago to Winneka to Waukegan, right? And like those are communities that are very different uh, levels of wealth, levels of resources, but we can connect those communities to each other so that it's not only community in the local neighborhood, but community across a network that can support each other as well. And I, I think that's really, really important for the work yeah, that we're doing. Yeah, you very naturally brought up um something that I've been kind of pondering on and Lauren knows, you know, as we were preparing for this episode, wanted to have a conversation around some of that dichotomy of individualism versus community. And I just want to share some appreciation to you, Brian, for bringing that in and interweaving it into how you think about um, the climate crisis and, and the ways in which you find hope within some in a problem that can seem so big and uncompromising. Yeah. I mean, I, I long for community where it's not a demand of conformity, right? You show up and you become the cookie cutter that's kind of laid out. And I think we can all think of faith traditions that do that. And I think it's unfortunate. I, I long for community in, in an alternative version that demands you be your best self, right? Like you 
demands that you be your fully authentic self, become fully you, like support you in whatever ways um, you're finding for your fully authentic self. And I think that demand is still a big part of belonging to community, like kind of an ethos of community that, that, but it's not a demand of conformity. It's a demand to uh, be the fullest Lauren, the fullest Katie, the fullest Brian, the fullest Christina. To that, I long for because I, I, I want that sort of accountability. I want to be seen at that sort of level, right? And understood at that sort of level. And I also want to be pushed, right? I want to be pushed to, to become that more. And I hope I can do that as a parent with my children, right? Like not demand that they become exactly who their dad thinks they should be, right? Like that's going to be the struggle, I think. But it's going to be a demand like, hey, I want you, Ida and Irene, to become your most fully authentic selves. And I'm here as a resource, a support, and a reminder to do that, right? And and it might not always go the way that I think it should go. And that's okay. I have my own individual self. You'll be your own individual self. And I, yeah, there's something to that, us creating more communities like that and supporting our faith traditions to become more that way, that I do think starts to address some of these inequities and justices that we see on a broader scale. I want to invite Christina into this conversation. Christina, what are you hearing um, that you might want to respond to? Yeah, so, um, you know, my kids being a little bit older, um, some of this, you know, that was theory when I was just raising little ones has become practice now, right? And I get to see what it looks like when a child starts to step into their actual reality and their identity and, and becomes their full self. And it's a very exciting thing to do. So, Brian, uh, nothing but joy uh, is, is coming for you as that happens. But um, it, it, yes to everything you've said so far. And I wanted to maybe, I don't know, share briefly kind of a little experience I had just personally in the last couple of weeks that kind of illustrated for me, uh, you know, another thing we need to be uplifting. And that is like having, you know, the generation like my generation or my children's generation stepping into that leadership um, at the, you know, in their governmental level, in their, you know, institutions, you know, that they care about level, you know, it's time for them to really step into that. I think, um, you know, they're, we are often, um, you know, people who might be one or two generations older than us get to make decisions for us. Uh, there was a recent, uh, again, personally speaking, there was a, an open school board seat in my town. And uh, I thought, well, why not me uh, run for a school board seat? Because when you look at the makeup of that school board, there, you know, no, no longer is there anyone on that board who had teaching experience as I did, you know, has young children currently in the district, um, you know, and, you know, while diversity on a board is a good thing of diversity of experience and age and things like that, what I see often is that folks in my age, which is older than Brian, um, folks my age sometimes are too busy with other things to step into some of that leadership role. Um, and it's really time for, you know, if you want to see your opinions represented in your institutions, you have to run, you have to step forward, you have to take that initiative. And it's scary. And there isn't always a really easy playbook for how to do that or, um, 
you know, it's certainly not convenient or inexpensive, but, um, you know, you, it's time for, for those of us who are feeling convicted about, boy, decision-making is not going the way, you know, my, my values say it should be going. It's time to start getting involved then. Um, and it just motivates me even more to model that for my children, show them, you know, that they can do that too. And, and doing it myself. Um, thanks for bringing that up, Christina. Um, I recently wrote uh, a chapter and did some research with one of my colleagues uh, that was published in the Handbook of International Trends and Environmental Communication, and we really focused on the youth climate strikes um, and Fridays for Future uh, that you know Greta Thunberg and, and others were really leading. And just the power of youth is amazing. I mean, just the impact that they had doing mostly digital advocacy and connecting with other youth from across the world was just so impressive. And so for me, even though I don't have children yet, that is something that gives me hope and that I look forward to because I really think our youth are the future. They're so powerful. Their voices really matter. And they're the ones that are going to be most affected by the climate crisis. And so giving them a voice and really listening to them in their perspective, I think is so important um, in this work. Well, I think that that's a great tie-in, Lauren, with Brian's op-ed and just how he ends it with, if we don't do something now, it's going to be Ida and Irene who are stuck paying the bill. Yeah, Katie, I was going to kind of say the same thing, but it, it, this also seems like a, a great Great uh, call out too to our youth program, which we, you alluded to earlier, our, our eco ambassador program, high school age youth, all across the regions that we serve at Faith in Place, who are who are leading for environmental causes already, and then we come together in our program and inspire one another to become even even more powerful leaders in that work. And I, I will claim, I mean, this might be you know a little controversial for the executive director to do, but I would say some of the most ex inspirational events that we do are the events where our eco ambassadors are taking the lead and that they're sharing at Faith in Place and really helping us understand uh, more broadly how to continue to advance you know, environmental justice in our communities. And so, yeah, definitely a big, big shout out for the youth. And uh, here's to hoping that I can you know, encourage my two little daughters someday when they're old enough to become so Faith in Place eco I have an eco ambassador in my household and uh, she's 17. She loves every minute of it. She's giving serious consideration to a career in something environmentally adjacent. Um, and then my 13 uh, year old has already expressed how, when can I start to be an eco ambassador? And I was, you know, you have to wait till high school, but um I guess we'll talk about it. So it looks like we uh, we might have a whole dynasty of eco ambassadors in our household. <laughs> that is so cool. That's awesome. Um, something that I don't know that I've shared yet on the podcast is I got into the environmental movement in high school, not through the eco ambassador program, but it was a cohort based program in my high school, and so. It's one reason why I love the Eco Ambassador program here, because to me, it really echoes some of the formative experiences that I had. And I want to make sure that there are other youth who have similar experiences and can see how, to Lauren's point earlier, 
everything is connected. And once those connections start like being formed, you're like, oh my gosh, it's, it's I everything. I did not have any environmental programs at my high school, but my senior year, I did win the most likely to become a tree hugger award that they did before prom. So, you know, they were pretty spot on, I guess. And I got more into everything in college. <laughs> That's incredible, Lauren. I love that so much for you. And I, I just love how the youth, to your point earlier, Brian, are like really uh, a source of hope. And um, if we give them the tools, if we educate them, to your point earlier, Christina, um, we can, they can go places. Like they can just take the tools that we've provided them and just take it to new levels that we haven't even imagined yet. And I think that is something that gives me hope is that there's just so much creativity and um, opportunity for reimagining the world that we live in now to see that more abundant world that we want to see. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Christina and Brian. Um, and thank you for sharing your insights about parenthood uh, within the climate crisis. And we really hope to see you again soon. Thank you to both Christina Krost and Reverend Brian Souter for speaking with Lauren and me about the complexities and the joys of raising children in the climate crisis. Parenthood is a unique experience for everyone, shaped by so many factors, including but not limited to socioeconomic, racial, and geographic differences, as well as adoption and other forms of chosen families. It is safe to say that we barely scratched the surface in today's episode, especially because we spoke with just two people on our team who are parents. Please take what we shared today with a grain of salt. Take what works for you and leave the rest. And as always, thank you for listening to the end of the episode. It truly means so much to us to have your support. Talk to you again soon. This podcast is a creation of Faith in Place a multi-faith environmental justice nonprofit based in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. We are the proud affiliate of Interfaith Power and Light, and we are on a mission to empower people of all faiths and spiritualities to be leaders in caring for the earth, providing resources to educate, connect, and advocate for healthier communities. This week's episode was produced by Brogan Malloy, your hosts are Katie Maxwell and Lauren Paris. Our theme song is Sweet Talk by Tyra Chatney. Please rate, review, or share this podcast with someone who might enjoy it. We can be found wherever you listen to podcasts, including Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. If you enjoy this podcast, please support the work of Faith in Place by donating. Please go to Faith in place.org forward slash donate. Your support means we can empower more youth, engage with more green teams, and advocate for better climate policies that put people and the planet first. And please follow our social media pages on Twitter at voices underscore of underscore earth and on Instagram 
at Voices of Earth Podcast. Thanks for listening.